0: Well, thank you, Owen, and the whole music team up here, helping us to sing together. It's a joy to sing great songs, great hymns. I know I often tell you that, but it it really is a blessing if you've been around different church movements. It's just good to have good, rich theological hymns, and listening to the one about the Word of God, I I think that was the first hymn written just on the Bible, and God's Word. and, And in the quiet and the stillness, I hear your voice, they're talking about... The time that you read the God, read God's Word by yourself. That you read the Word and take it in. And that's where you hear God's voice through His Word that He's given us. And preaching is, is a hearing of God's voice as we read the Word out loud. Now you get to hear God's voice out loud through the Word of God being read. And, and then preached and explained is when the preacher opens it up. Hopefully in an expositional way. Explaining the meaning of the passage. Word by word, verse by verse. And then suggesting application, but much of the application is done by the Holy Spirit in your own heart. And the goal of every sermon is to cause a change in the listener's heart through the Holy Spirit working on you. If it's an unbeliever listening, then the goal there is to see God convert that person. To come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. For the believer, which we have many believers here today, is to be edified, to be built up, to be strengthened. It's not about being entertained. It's not about laughing a lot. Sometimes, of course, there's laughing at me and laughing with me, but there is a time in the worship right now that we want to go to God's Word, and we want to be built up in the faith, and all of that glorifies Him. Sinners coming to Christ, glorify Him. Believers being edified, glorify Him. So today, I want to bring to you a message from the book of Romans, and we've been making our way expositionally through the book of Romans, and I I just want to bring to you a message entitled, Do You Practice What You Preach? Do You Practice What You Preach? Romans 2, 17 through 20. And I want to read the passage to you. And you're going to see that it applies to the Jew of Paul's day. But it's very close, very close to the average American person who goes to church, who grows up in church, who thinks they're saved, but they're not. They think they're saved because they know something about the Bible, or maybe they've heard the Bible growing up. So as I read this, I'll read the whole paragraph to, to give you the context. Romans 2, 17 through 24. As I read it, think about you, think about the culture of Christianity today. And you'll see that it applies very directly. Paul says in Romans 2, 17, But if you bear the name Jew, and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident That you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach one another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your transgression of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Do you practice what you preach? That is basically what Paul is asking the unbelieving Jews. He is saying, you know the Bible, but do you live it out? Do you obey the word of God? Do you show signs of being converted? And as I preach and as I Think about years of ministry, how many people I've come to know that thought they were saved, and hearing testimony after testimony of someone thinking they're saved, and then later actually coming to saving faith. They thought they were saved, they grew up thinking that, and then later they do get saved, they come here, we interview them for membership. It's my favorite time with new members, we get to hear their testimony, and often, this is pretty much the case the majority of the time, I thought I was a Christian at this point in my life. But it turns out I really wasn't. I wasn't. And as they look back, they know that they were not living out what God's word said. They were not obeying the commands of the Bible. They couldn't. The Bible says you can't obey. You can't please God. Paul will get to that in Romans 8. You cannot please God without the Holy Spirit. You cannot please God as an unbeliever. And so he's evangelizing through the letter written to the church in Rome And he is evangelizing the Jews in this portion. And he's helping the Christians, because they're going to read this, and they're going to hear it preached and explained. He's helping Christians go out and take the gospel message to the Jews. And even today, this helps us to take the message to anybody who thinks they're a Christian because they grew up in America, they went to church, their father was a deacon, or however that it comes to be, they think they're saved. Now, just to review a bit here, Paul has been talking about how we need the gospel The gospel is the righteousness of God, he says in 117. It's revealed from faith to faith. How do we receive the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ? By having faith in him alone. And Paul just opens up the letter after telling us about himself, just with giving us a short summary, 116, 117. It is the power of God for salvation. Now, he now covers for two chapters, really the necessity of the gospel. Why we need the gospel to go out. Why is it now and this time in history, Paul saying, that God has revealed this. Why today do we need to take the gospel? Why do we need to trust in Christ through faith alone? Well, it's simple, he says in 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You either get the righteousness revealed through Christ or you get the wrath of God revealed to the unbeliever. And so he talks about Gentiles, people who've never heard the gospel, they've never heard the Bible, they've never read the Mosaic law. What about them? Well, they have a law of God, Paul says. They have a knowledge of God in creation and in their heart. and They know right from wrong. And when they sin against that knowledge, when they do wrong, their conscience convicts them and they don't worship God and they don't honor God. And they are condemned for that. That is why the person who's never heard of Jesus still will be punished eternally because they still sinned against the God that they knew existed and they did not glorify Him. Then he goes in chapter 2 and talks about the Jew. The Jew has the Bible. They know about the coming Messiah. They have the law given to them. They know how to please God. And yet Paul is telling us in chapter 2 here that they don't do it. They look down at the Gentiles. They think they're better than the Gentiles who don't know God But Paul's saying, really, it's the same situation. In fact, the Jews will have more judgment if they don't believe in Christ because they had all of this and still didn't believe. And he's telling them, you have greater condemnation. You will be judged even more because you had all the Old Testament and did not trust that God could save through his Messiah. So he's been arguing with the Jew here in chapter 2. And he's doing that part of the gospel presentation where you tell them the bad news. They have to know the bad news. We can't cut that out. We can't skip over that. We can't just say, let me tell you how wonderful your life will be if you come to Jesus. The person has to believe they're a sinner. They have to believe that they're condemned until they trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior. So he starts in one. Therefore, you are without excuse, talking to the Jew, everyone who passes judgment. Then he goes into this idea about the law. And he, we just finished last week here in this section 12 through 16. Where he's talking about the Gentiles having this law upon their heart. And they know. They know when they've done something wrong. Now he comes back here in verse 17. And he's going to tell us the rest of chapter 2. That the Jew is condemned just like the Gentile. And the way he's going to do it. It's going back to that style where he argues with this imaginary opponent. It's called a diatribe. And in ancient times, that's what you would do. You would argue with the imaginary opponent and they would understand it as they read. Now here's what the opponent is going to say at this point in Paul's argument. They're going to say, yeah, Paul, we know we sin. We know sometimes we don't obey God perfectly. But we have the law and we have circumcision. And we trust in those things to save us. And so Paul is going to address that. In 17 through 24, his discussion is the Jew and the law. And do they actually obey the law? Do they even do what they claim? And in 25 through 29, he's going to address circumcision. So I'm just taking the first part of this paragraph, 17 through 24, the first part of that, the first half there, and I'm going to explain the meaning of that. And we're going to look at these advantages. ...that the Jewish person has. They do have advantages by having the Bible. They have more knowledge than the Gentile. God is going to judge them more harshly if they deny that knowledge. They're going to get greater punishment, in other words. Because they have the knowledge of the law. The Old Testament. So what he's doing in 17-20 is he's going to list six spiritual advantages. The Jew has six spiritual advantages over the pagan who's never heard the bible read, teach, preached or taught. He is going to show us six spiritual advantages. These are what the Jews claim for themselves. But Paul is agreeing with them. At the face of it, everything he says in this passage should be true even of even of the Christian. We're not called Jew, but everything else in the list should be true of us. We should practice what we preach. We shouldn't claim to believe these things in scripture And then turn around like the unbelieving Jew does. And disobey and run from the very things that we claim to be. Does our life match our doctrine? Does our life match our doctrine? That is the argument Paul is making. Oh Jew, does your life match up with what you claim to be? So six spiritual advantages. Before he even talks about that, he starts off by saying, If you, but if you... So after talking to the Gentiles in the law, he goes back into this second-person diatribe, lively argument. And the if there tells us he's making a conditional statement. If this, then that. Now he never gets to then that. He changes at the breaking point there and starts asking rhetorical questions in verse 21. But 17 through 20 is all the if. In other words, if you claim to be all these things that I'm going to list, which are good things, which you should be doing, he says, then What he covers after that in 21 through 24, which we'll look at next week, that will tell us if you actually are doing the things that you claim to be. And he's assuming this to be true. In 17 through 20, he's assuming that that is true of them. So let's look at these six spiritual advantages. Number one, God had given them the Abrahamic covenant. God had given them the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's getting at when he says, If you bear the name Jew, if you call yourself a Jew, which of course they would have, they're very proud of that. I mean, they had the Abrahamic covenant applied to them. Now, originally in the Bible, the nation of God's people was called Israel. They were called the Israelites after Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. The Israelites, because Jacob had also been given the name Israel, they were the nation of Israel, the Israelites. They get taken into exile into Babylon. And when they come back, most of them came from the nation of Judah. That's who went to Babylon. And when they come back, they live around Jerusalem and the area that was originally given to the tribe of Judah. So the name Jew comes from this area, Judea, the area where the tribe of Judah lived. And this covenant given to Abraham goes down through his son Isaac to Jacob to Israel And the son, one of the 12 sons that Jacob had, was named Judah. That's what the tribe of Judah is named after. And you know what Judah means? It means praise. Judah means praise. It means praise God, basically, is what they should be doing as a people. And that was where the name Judah came from. When the Israelites came back from exile, they're living in the land. Everybody's calling them Judeans or Jews for short. And Paul is saying, if you bear that name, He's recalling their family heritage. If you're from the line of Judah all the way back to Abraham, then you ought to be a certain way. You ought to live like you're part of the Abrahamic covenant. You ought to live like a Jew. Not just say you believe it, but live like a Jew. Here's the Abrahamic covenant that would apply to the physical descendants and and even part of it today to the spiritual descendants. Genesis 12, 3, God promised Abraham and all his descendants, I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, that was something that the Jews rested upon. We're Abraham's children. God said he would bless Abraham. That means we are going to be saved. We are Abraham's descendants. This is why John the Baptist, as he shows up preaching at the Jordan River, he says, you, you come out, you Pharisees, you come out like vipers, you brood of vipers, and you say, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, God doesn't need you. That's what he's saying. God doesn't need you. You think that you're contributing something to God? You think you're contributing something to his coming kingdom? God doesn't need you. He can cause these stones to turn into people if he wanted to that would follow him. In other words, don't trust. John the Baptist is saying, don't trust in your family heritage to save you. Even the Jews who could actually look back to the Abrahamic covenant and say we're physical descendants, that is not a guarantee of salvation. People today might look back to their parents and say, well, my parents were the best Christians that ever existed. And you know what? That might even be true. Where are you with the Lord, though? Where is your heart right now? Is it with Jesus Christ? Are you in Jesus Christ? Are you saying like they did, well, look back to my parents and my grandparents and generations of Christians, and I'm from America. But where are you? They were from the nation Israel. They had the oracles of God. They studied it. They heard it preached and taught. And he still says, you can't claim that. You can't claim that. But Paul here is challenging them in Romans 2 and saying, look, if you bear the name Jew, you can't claim you're saved just because you're Jew is what he's getting at. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. And of course, they would have said, oh, amen, amen to that. But he's going to go on with the list here. That's just the first one. And the idea is to bring conviction from this list. This list ought to convict the unbelieving Jew who's listening because they know that they're not matching up to this. Secondly, God had given them the Mosaic law. God had given them the Mosaic law. And he says in this short phrase, and rely upon the law. You bear the name Jew, so you're a descendant of Abraham, but also you rely upon the law. The idea here is that they rested upon the law of Moses. He's already been discussing the law of Moses. He's already talked about that. They, they objected, in a sense, to the fact that how can Gentiles be judged? They don't have the law. And he told them, well, they don't have the Mosaic law, but they still have a law that God has given them. They know right from wrong. But he says, look, you've been blessed with the law. Every Jew understood that was a blessing. Just like today, we've been blessed with the Bible as Christians. Where would we be without the Bible. No telling what kind of heresies we would, we've had the Bible for 2,000 years and there's still hundreds and thousands of heresies throughout church history. Imagine where we'd be without God's word telling us what to do, what to believe, how to live. They had the Mosaic law. And Paul says, you rely upon it. In other words, the, the Greek word here means peace, inner security as a result of having God's word. A Jew did not have to be concerned about how to sacrifice. God laid it out specifically in the law. They did not have to be concerned about how to propitiate God's wrath upon us. He told them, you go to the day of atonement and you do these certain things. And the high priest does this. And the the Levites do this. And the people bring this sacrifice. And this animal and that animal. Leviticus 26 even lays out blessings. Blessings for those under the Mosaic covenant. The Jews. If you walk in my statutes, it says, God is speaking to the nation. If you walk in my statutes, you keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the Lord will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering and grape gathering will last until sowing time. There's just so much fruit coming in and so much produce. I shall also grant peace in the land. So that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land. No sword will pass through your land. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will confirm my covenant with you. If they obeyed, which we know they didn't. That's why they went into exile. Even in Jesus' day, they're not obeying. But if they did, God said he would bless them. The Mosaic covenant was conditional. If they obey they would receive blessings. If they disobeyed, they would receive curses, punishment. Well, Paul is reminding them, you are a Jew. You're from the line of Abraham. You have the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. But you also have the Mosaic covenant, which was clearly laid out how you should do the things that God wants you to do. And they had peace in that. They had peace in that. The problem is, they were so confident in the law, they began to rely upon it for salvation instead of God himself. They looked to the law to show them the path, because if they worked enough, they thought they did the law perfectly, then they could get into heaven. And even if they didn't obey perfectly, they thought their good would outweigh their bad. Does that sound familiar? People today, people today in the world, my good outweighs my bad, and God will Put those things up on the measuring scale and I've done so much good that God will let me into heaven. It's not the way it works. That's what Paul's getting at here. That everyone is unrighteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10. One sin. One sin is enough to spend eternity in hell if you don't have Christ. That's where everyone that doesn't have Christ is going. Well, having God's written law, he's saying, is not enough. Here's what uh, William Shedd said. This confidence they had in the law had degenerated into a blind trust. As if the mere possession of such a law were enough. Having your Bible, just owning a Bible, you can own 10 Bibles, you can own 100 Bibles. That in and of itself is not enough. Yes, the Bible tells us the way of salvation. Praise the Lord, we have it. But if you think just owning it, just having it in your possession or thinking that just owning a Bible or knowing some scriptures will save you, Paul says to the Jew and the unbelieving Gentile today, that is not enough. Speaking of the leaders of Israel, here's what Micah said in the Old Testament. The prophet Micah, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. They can be bribed. They're pronouncing bad judgments in the court. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, "Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us." Micah 3:11. They do all this sin and then they sit back and say, "But the Lord is with us. We're fine. We won't get judgment like those Gentiles do. The Lord is with us because they have given or God has given them the law." Thirdly, Paul says, "And boast in God." So he's just going down the list here and he's saying, "You, you call yourself a Jew, and that's right, because you are Jewish. You you have peace, you rely upon the law. And on the surface of it, that's good, except that they trusted in the law to save them instead of God. And thirdly, they boast in God. God was their God. And it's true. God told Abraham, I will be your God. He told Isaac that. He reinstated the covenant to Jacob. He said, I will be your God. He gave them his covenant name so that they would know it, so that they would worship him. You've heard me reading it lately in the Legacy Standard Bible, Yahweh. That's the covenant name. That is the personal name. Not just the general G-O-D, God, as in a God, but the one God that has a relationship with Israel. God was their God, and they boasted. The boast means to take pride in something, To boast, to glory, to pride oneself, to brag, to express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy. So boasting can be good or bad, and it can be good or bad in the Bible. Paul will use it when he talks about boasting in God, that's good. That's where you want to put your boast. Boasting in yourself, that's bad. Boasting in man, that is sinful. So boasting can be bad, it can be good. But to boast in the Lord is definitely a good thing. If you're truly following him, if you love him with all your heart and mind, you want to give him the glory. Every time you do good and somebody pats you on the back, you give glory to God. You boast in him. Remember, to boast means to express a high degree of confidence in someone or something. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, And let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. There was too much boasting in the wrong direction in the nation Israel. The Jew boasted in themselves. They boasted in their ability to follow the law. They boasted in what they wore, what they did and didn't eat. And God constantly reminded them to boast in Him. He's the only thing that deserves honor and glory and praise. We don't. But sometimes God gives us a blessing. Sometimes people are kind to us. Sometimes they build us up and we need that. But ultimately, all the glory goes to God. Now, this is not something the Gentiles had. The Gentiles did not have the creator God of the universe as a personal God that blessed them. Yes, they had common grace. The rains fall on the just and the unjust. But they did not have a saving relationship or knowledge or any path to go and believe upon the Messiah like the Jews had. The Jews had the scriptures. Another reason we need to take the gospel to unreached people groups. How were they going to hear? Paul will say that in, in chapter 10 of Romans. How are they going to hear unless someone takes the gospel to them? They've got to hear. A preacher's got to go. Someone's got to take the Bible to them. That's why Bible translation, by the way, is so important. Often we think, you know, we've got plenty of English versions. We're not really concerned. There are people in this world that do not have a Bible in their own language. They do not have a Bible in their own language. How are they even going to read God's word? Much less know if the preacher who comes to visit is telling the truth. Do preachers always stick with the Bible? Are there a lot of bad, false teachers out there? It's good for everyone in the church to have a Bible. In fact, one of our missionaries in Colombia was just asking me last week if we could help them get some, some Bibles in Spanish because they're having a Bible conference. And to get like a study Bible, MacArthur Study Bible in Spanish, costs a third of their yearly income or something crazy like that because of the economy. So we're looking at ways that we can help them do that. God was their god he had given them his word they could claim that he was their god and ephesians 2:12 paul's talking to gentiles in ephesus and he says remember that you were at that time separate from christ remember who you were before you were saved you were separated from christ excluded from the commonwealth of israel meaning you didn't have the the abrahamic covenant you didn't have the mosaic covenant applied to you and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. We often just assume, well, everybody has God. Well, Yeah, everybody has a God as creator. Paul said that in Romans 1. But not everybody has an intimate, personal relationship with God. And not everybody has the Bible, even, when it comes to knowing God. So the implied point, I think, that Paul, there's a little bit of sarcasm in each statement, you probably noticed. They boast in God. Yeah, that can be true, but it can be Wrong for them as well. Because they're actually not boasting in God. But they're boasting in themselves. And the implied point here. Is that while they claim God was their God. They boasted in the God who created all things. But they did not do what he told them to do. To do. He did, they didn't obey his law. They didn't live it out. That's what James is getting at. He's talking to Jewish Christians. Who've recently come to Saving Faith. And there's all these problems in the early church. And he writes a letter. And in James 2.19 he says. You believe. That God is one. You believe in God. Wonderful. You do well, he says. The demons also believe and shudder. You believe in God. Wonderful. So does almost every American. Even the atheists in their heart know there is a God. The demons do too. And Satan does too. If that's all it takes to be saved, well, we have a problem, don't we? The Bible says, even the demons believe and shudder. There's more. There's more than just having the Bible. There's more than just knowing that there is a creator. You've got to trust in Christ. You've got to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Fourth on the list, moving into verse 18. And know his will. And know his will. So he said, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will. In fact, the word his is inserted in English to help us. The Jew knew when Paul said, you know the will. There's only one will and it's the will of God. And if you know the will, his will, if you know that, they knew God's will. They did not just have the word of God, but they actually were exposed to it repeatedly and regularly so that they knew the will of God. They didn't ask the question that many people ask today. What is the will of God for my life? They knew. They knew their Bibles. They memorized it in synagogue. They heard it read in synagogue. They knew it. They taught it to their children. Haldane describes it well. He says they knew. They knew what is agreeable to God. What he requires them to do. What he commands. What he prohibits. What he approves. And what he rewards. They knew what God's will was. Psalm 147 verse 19. If you want to go there with me. Let's look at this passage. Psalm 147. And it explains here. What did they know? He declares his words to Jacob. 147 19. He declares his words to Jacob. Not just the individual Jacob, but the whole nation. The nation of Israel. His statutes. His ordinances to Israel. He tells them exactly what to do. There's no question. He has not dealt thus with any nation. No one else got God's law like they got it at Mount Sinai. No one else. And for, as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Talking about the Gentiles. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We can't imagine what it was like in the ancient world. All the pagans out there knew there was a God, but they had no idea how to worship that God. They just knew that they should, and then they ran off in their own sinful ways and created idols and did all kinds of human sacrifice. The Jews knew. They didn't have to wonder. They knew. They knew God's will for them. The psalm tells us right here. Yet this blessing that they had, It's going to bring greater judgment upon them because the more you know, Jesus said, the more you are held accountable by God for that knowledge. If you're not in Christ here today and and you're listening to the Bible and you're hearing this, you're already getting more knowledge and the more you know, the Bible says, the more you'll be held accountable. They knew God's will. Just like people who grow up in church. Maybe they've experienced some experience of Christianity throughout their life. Maybe they've turned away from the Lord today because they wanted to chase their sinful desires. Maybe you knew God's will, but you just didn't care. That's most of us when we were unsaved. I know when I was unsaved, I knew what the Bible said. I grew up going to church. I heard the scriptures. I even had a copy that my grandma gave me. I even read the book of Revelation in high school, and it scared me, but I didn't care. My will was more important than God's will until he changed my heart. They knew God's will, but they did not care. Maybe today you know somebody who's turned away from the Lord because they say they have an intellectual difficulty. They struggle with what the Bible says and gay marriage today. Or they struggle with the Bible and slavery throughout history. Or they struggle with what the Bible says about homosexuality. And normally, in most cases, even that intellectual struggle is actually just an excuse for them to go and live their own sinful desires. In fact, one of my seminary professors used to say when he was in ministry that if a man came to him and wanted to debate some theology, some strange tidbit of theology all day, he would just say, what's her name? What's her name? And he said 98% of the time, it was typically the man was struggling with some issue in the Bible trying to justify his sin. And so the pastor would just skip right to it and say, what's her name? Or what's the sin that you're wanting to run into in your life? For most of us, it's not a true intellectual issue that we struggle with. It's the desire to try to fit our sin somewhere into the Bible. And the Bible says, no. God says, no. We are sinners. And here's exactly what to do. He gives us his will. It's for you to be holy. It's for you to be sanctified. It doesn't tell you who you should marry, what job you should take. You're supposed to read the Bible and gain wisdom and then make a decision that glorifies him. But it does tell us his will. To be holy, like he is holy. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. We, We warn people every communion, every time we take the Lord's Supper, examine yourselves. See if you're in the faith. See if you're in Christ. Meaning, check out your life. Are you... Practicing what you preach? Are you living out these commands in Scripture? And generally, generally growing in holiness throughout your life. The fifth advantage that they had over the Gentile, the fifth advantage that every Jew in Paul's day and, and from the time of Moses had over the Gentiles is they approve the good. They approve the good. He says in the LSB translation, and approve the things. That are essential. He's drawing a conclusion here about worth. That's what it means to approve. Looking at something and drawing a conclusion and saying that is a good thing. That is a good deed. That is a good action. And they would know this because the Bible had taught them what was right. And what were the spiritual things. Like Paul says, whatever is good, whatever is excellent. They knew that. The things that are essential the idea is having the knowledge of what god approves this is knowledge the gentiles did not have the jews could approve of what is essential essential is just to be of considerable value to be worth more the superior things is probably a better translation so that you may approve the superior things the things that are excellent remember philippians 1:10 paul says christians we need to approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere And blameless until the day of Christ. Have discernment. To have the Bible means you have discernment. And he's hinting at the fact that they weren't having discernment. Jews weren't having discernment because Paul's preaching the gospel and they don't want to hear it. Paul's preaching about the Messiah that they should be looking for according to Isaiah 53. And just like today, Jews don't even know Isaiah 53. It's not read in the synagogues. They've stopped up their ears and blinded their eyes to it. Now, he summarizes verses 17 and 18 by saying, be instructed out of the law. How do they know God's will? How do they know to approve the things that are essential? Because they've been instructed out of the law. This explains how they know these things. The law, which we could say all the prophets too, later in the Old Testament, what do they do? They point back to the law. They say, you've broken the covenant that Moses... May or God made through Moses to you. You've broken that covenant. You will be punished. Repent and do the things that God has told you to do. That's what the prophets were saying. They were prosecuting attorneys. The prophets were saying, okay, Israel, here's the case. I'm the prosecuting attorney. Here's your sin. Here's, this is going to be your punishment if you don't repent. They had all of that. They were instructed by all of the Old Testament. The moral person today says, you know, I have the Bible. I have the Bible. I know God. I know. I believe God exists. But does that actually make them saved? Does that mean that they have put their trust in Christ? We need to keep coming back to this idea. You have a lot of neighbors who say they believe in God. They may even believe in Jesus. But does that mean that they're actually saved? Now, you won't always know. You can ask them a lot of questions. You don't always know exactly if they're just misunderstanding Scripture or they're truly unsaved. Many times you'll find that people are trusting just in their belief in God in general. It's good in evangelism or apologetics even to go into some questioning, into some details, to have some well-meaning conversations with your friends and with your neighbors. Love them enough to do that. Love them enough to just talk about the faith that they profess. Maybe they need teaching and maybe they're not saved. Lastly, number six. The sixth advantage They are teachers to the godless. All of 19 and 20 get at one main point. They have all this knowledge. They have the Bible. They have the law. They know what God's will is. They can approve the excellent superior things. And they're to be teachers to the godless. That's their ministry to the Gentiles. The Jews are supposed to be ministering to the Gentiles. Telling them about the one true God. This was their mission statement. A lot of churches have mission statements. Some are good, some are bad. The Jews knew exactly what their mission statement was. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So he's giving them, at this point, he's going to give them the Mosaic Covenant. If you keep this covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. So God is saying he's created everyone and everything. But out of all the earth, he's chosen the nation Israel because of the promises to Abraham. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's their mission statement. They're to live holy lives. They're to be a beacon on a hill, a city on a hill, with all of this light so that people can flock to the nation Israel and learn about the one true God. But they didn't obey. They became basically racist in a sense. You see, Jonah being sent to the Ninevites and getting upset because God is saving pagans. They became hypocritical, did not obey God's law. They looked down their noses at the nations, but their mission statement was to attract the people from the surrounding nations to the one true God. So Paul talks about this in Romans 19 and 20. Again, this if that started in verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and all these others and are confident that you yourself, He's getting very emphatic. You yourself are a guide to the blind. A guide. One who leads the way, who leads the path in reaching a desired destination. The blind would be the Gentiles, those without God. They're blind. They don't know how to find God. They cannot get there. They need a guide. Commentator Leon Morris says the revelation of God was never meant to be private A private treasure of one nation, which it could withhold from all others. Israel was to bring the light of God into the world's darkness. It was to share its revelation with the multitudes that did not have it. The only difference today is we have more of the revelation, and we have Christ who's already come, and he's died on the cross, and we have the full message, and we're to go out. They were to build up in the promised land and attract people. We're to build up and go out. We build up in the church, and we send out. They were still supposed to be evangelistic. Let's go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 6. And Isaiah reminds them of this. God speaking through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 5, thus says God, Yahweh. And he uses Yahweh. I think it's over 6,000 times in the Old Testament Yahweh is used to remind them he is their covenant God. The one they promised and made a covenant with. He says in Isaiah 42, 6, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you. And I will give you as a covenant to the people, to the goyim in Hebrew, to the nations, as a light to the nations. To do what? To open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God wants the message to go out. God hates that people are worshiping graven images. He wants them to take the message out. They don't do it. They fell at that over and over. Skip forward to Isaiah 49, 6. But there is one, there is one who is coming, that is a Jew, who will take this message. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return? I will also give you, talking about the servant here, capital S, servant, the Messiah, in other words. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is how all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. This is why Jesus told the woman at the well that, he, that, that salvation comes from the Jews. She had it wrong. She thought the Samaritans had some form of salvation. And he's pointing at himself, because God had said here in Isaiah, my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Jews didn't take out the light. They weren't a guide to the blind like they were supposed to. But one was coming in Isaiah's day. One was coming in the future and he's already come. Jesus Christ, who would do that. And he's told the church, that's what we're to do. Now the issue is that the Jews did not do this. Jesus says, woe to you blind guides. In the book of Matthew, he calls the Pharisees blind guides. Yeah, they're trying to guide people, but they're actually guiding them the wrong way. They're blind themselves. Matthew 15, 14. Let them alone, he says. They're blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. If you get somebody who is teaching you wrongly from the Bible, they will lead you completely the wrong direction. Sometimes people get upset because we talk about false teaching, but the Bible talks about false teaching. Sometimes people get upset because we talk about bad theology out there in the prosperity gospel. But we can't be blind guides leading the blind. We've got to be Seeing clearly according to scripture. Putting our scripture glasses on. Seeing clearly. And guiding people out of darkness into the light. Which is his next metaphor here. A light to those who are in darkness. They're supposed to be a light to those who are in darkness. This is another way of describing the teacher of God's word. They're supposed to teach the truth. The Gentiles in darkness. They're the unbelieving person. And they need to be seeing the true God in scripture. But the Jews weren't doing that. They were supposed to. This was all in Scripture. We just read about it in Isaiah. And he goes in verse 20, he puts it another way, a corrector of the foolish. A foolish person is someone who does not understand God and His ways. They're ignorant of the truth. They're untrained. The Gentiles untrained. They need someone to show them the way of truth, the way of salvation. Of course, Paul says, you call yourself these things and the implication is they're not doing it. They got too worried. They were were straining out gnats. They should have been proclaiming the Messiah, and believing upon him when Paul showed up with the gospel message. You know, Jesus was the ultimate instructor. He was the ultimate teacher. He taught everything in the Bible according to the way it should be taught. He corrected the foolish views of the Pharisees. They were supposed to be wise, leading the foolish, and he calls them foolish. Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness, you foolish ones. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? They're so worried about food laws and all these things and washing your hands and doing all this stuff. And they've forgotten that the Messiah is right there in front of them. They've forgotten that sin comes from the heart, not the food they put in to their body. Paul says they're supposed to be a teacher of the immature. It's just another way of saying the corrector of the foolish. You call yourself a Jew, you have the Bible, you have God, you know him, you know his will, teach the immature. Teach literally the infants and their knowledge of God. They don't know. They're, they're Gentiles. They're, they're like babies. Babies only know their natural instinct. The other day we were at the river and, and my two-year-old just takes off. She wants to run into the water. And she thinks you can see the bottom. It's a clear river. And we've got to catch her because she doesn't know. She's immature. She's a baby. She thinks she can just run all the way across the water. So we catch her. Well, that's The Gentiles, they're running over the cliff into hell and we, those who have the scriptures, are supposed to help them. We're supposed to catch them with the word and be fishers of men. And he wraps it all up by saying that they're teachers, they're correctors, they're instructors, because having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. In the law, in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic law, they have the embodiment, the essential features, the qualities of something is what embodiment means. The formal structure. They know. They don't have to guess. It's right there in God's word. It's right there. They don't have to guess at it. He's given us this whole book. We we'll don't have to guess. I wonder what God wants us to do with our life. Well, He tells us glorify Him, obey Him, point people to Christ, join a church. Worship together, serve believers, do the 31 another's that a church is supposed to do. Of course, that comes in the New Testament, but they had enough in the old to know exactly what they were to do. They had the embodiment of the truth. And it's not just the truth, but also the knowledge that you've got to have knowledge and truth. So we've got to ask ourselves as we close out this passage: are we living out what we proclaim? Are we practicing what we preach? Are we nodding to the sermon and to our Bible reading, but then not living it out? Are we saying, amen, pastor, but then going throughout our weekly life, sinning and sinning and sinning and building up this guilty conscience and knowing that we, we might not be a Christian because we're really not living at all like one. Paul's been really churning up the Jewish heart in chapter 2 of Romans. And hopefully any unbelievers listening would have their heart pricked You know, Paul knew what he was talking about here. He knew. He had been an unconverted Jew. He had been a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. And he understood exactly the person he's talking to. The person who thinks their knowledge of the Bible will save them. The person who thinks, oh yeah, I can debate theology, so I will certainly be saved. Paul said, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. That's what he calls himself before he was saved. He thought he thought he was going to be saved based on his knowledge of the word. And later, when he's converted, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. To any unbeliever, God can show mercy. If you come to Christ, God can show mercy. He did the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was sitting there cheering on the people who were stoning Christians. He was holding their coats. He was going out arresting Christians and bringing them back so they could be stoned. And he says... I was shown mercy because I acted in unbelief. You know, knowing the scripture can actually give you a false sense of confidence if you're not saved. You think, man, I just know so much about the Bible. But it can give you... The hardest people to evangelize are those who know a lot of the Bible, but they're not saved. They're unconverted. They're the hardest. Just try. Just try going to your kinfolk who are part of some other Christian group that focuses on rituals And see how hard it is to evangelize them. Remember Judas? He heard Jesus preach. He lived with Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus for three years. And Judas thought he was going into the kingdom of God. Do you remember Demas? Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul says, this is his last letter to send out. He's about to be killed. And he's talking about various people in the church. And he says, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. Meaning he's deserted the faith. He didn't want to be around Paul. He was ashamed of Paul getting arrested for the gospel. Unbeliever today, if you're listening, if you're watching this, you need to consider what the Bible says about your own life, your own destiny. You can be shown mercy if you trust in Christ. You can be saved. You don't have to continue on in this false Christianity that you've held to. Believer, we need to look at this passage. We need to understand how Paul evangelized. There's no altar call here. There's no sinner's prayer here. There's no raising your hand here. He's saying to people, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. The only way you will have the righteousness of Christ is through faith alone. And he's convincing them over and over. You have sinned. You have sinned. You're a Gentile. You have sinned. You're a Jew. You have sinned. You need a Savior. He'll get to that and open it up in chapter 3. But believer, we need to remember the gospel. We need to preach it to ourselves, yes. We need to realize where we were. And we need to tell others, starting with the people closest to us, starting with our family, starting with our children, our neighbors, our co-workers. So let's do that as a church and see how God saves people by changing hearts. Lord, we do thank you for your word. It is precious. Let us not be like the Jews of Paul's day, resting on our knowledge Yes, knowledge is important for the believer, but let's not rest on that. Just having a Bible, Lord, doesn't save us. We need Christ. We need the person of Jesus Christ. We need the work that he did for us. The Bible tells us of those things and we believe that it's true, but we believe in a person. He is our Savior. So I pray today, Lord, that we would be blessed as we meditate and consider this passage and apply it to our own life. Let us not be Hypocrites, let us practice what we preach. Let us have our life matching our doctrine. In the name of our Lord, amen.